Be in Ezra, Ezra chapter 10. Ezra chapter 10. I think we're going to go right from the book of Ezra into uh, the book of Nehemiah, uh, just because some interesting parallels we're going to see in there. One thing, uh, too, that I often get confused uh, when, you know, talking about Ezra and Nehemiah, because there's some very similar stories that happen in both. In fact, Ezra and Nehemiah, they both kind of end the same way. And I'll, I'm going to show some of that um, as we go through this. But I believe there's a message that we're supposed to be getting from these books that is a message that screams throughout the entire Old Testament. And it's a message I'm afraid many people have missed. And I want to make sure we get a hold of this. But uh, we'll go ahead and start reading in verse 1 of Ezra 10. It says, Now when Ezra had prayed... And when he had confessed, weeping and casting himself down before the house of God, there ascended unto him out of Israel a very great congregation of men and women and children, for the people wept very sore. And if you remember last week, um, Ezra and his team, they come, they're coming back to Jerusalem from Babylon to prepare everyone, to prepare the Levites to get back to work in doing the, the work of God, the service of God. But we saw last week they found out that the priests had intermarried with the heathen. They weren't supposed to do that. And so, um, whenever they realize that they've uh, done this, uh, they like we got to do something about it. And this was this was a great sin that they were commanded not to do in the Old Testament. And this brings up that dilemma because you do you have your people, and I'm tired of both groups. Okay. I'm, I'm, both groups frustrate me to no end. You have the just hardcore against divorce in every case people who beat people over the head with it. And let me listen. It's easy to prove from the scriptures that you shouldn't get divorced. Okay. It's like people, it's amazing the things they choose to just go crazy on and to beat people over the head with. But it's like you're missing the point. Okay, you literally miss the point. So you do. You have the people that are just kind of jerks about it, and then you have the other people that are just like, "Go ahead and get divorced." You know, it's okay for everything. And I'm not saying that there is like this middle ground where some divorce is okay. No, I, I believe divorce is a sin. I believe divorce is against God's plan. But I think any time somebody puts this overemphasis on it and they're beating people up over it who have messed up in these areas. They're kind of missing the point and just showing themselves to be hypocrites is typically what they're doing. And I think you'll understand that more as we go through this. But this was, a, yeah, this was a problem. I don't think anybody can make a good argument or uh, again, or could make a good argument showing that God is ever okay with divorce. I just, I don't think you can do that. But it says uh, in verse, we'll, let's keep reading, but they're going to do that. There's going to be a bunch of divorces that take place here. It says in Shechani, the son of Jehiel, one of the sons of Elam answered and said unto Ezra, We have trespassed against our God and have taken strange wives uh, of the people of the land. Yet now there is hope in Israel concerning this thing. Now therefore let us make a covenant with our God to put away all the wives and such as are born of them according to the counsel of my Lord and those that tremble at the commandment of our God and let it be done according to the law. So again, I'm not here today to prove this action right or wrong. Ezra was a scribe of God who knew his stuff. And remember, there was an allowance for divorce. A bill of divorcement did exist. 
It was for a very specific reason. We're not even going to get into that. But at the same time, Jesus makes it very clear that, you know what? God was never for divorce. And from and he, he proved that by going to Genesis. You can always find foundational truth for everything in Genesis. Okay, The dispensational world shows God changing everything. You can pretty much find everything in Genesis everything of major importance in Genesis. And Jesus went back to Genesis to prove it's God's intention for one man and one woman to be married for life and to only let death put them asunder. Okay? So I think, I think we all get that. Um, but notice in verse 4, it says, Arise, for this matter belongeth unto thee. We also will be with thee. Be of good courage and do it. So Ezra, he is, he's like the law enforcement officer. The law with a capital L enforcement officer and his men are letting him know that it is, you know, it's his decision, but they also have his back if he's going to do this thing. So it says, then arose Ezra and made the chief priests, the Levites and all Israel to swear that they should do according to his word and they swear. And so it's good that the people uh, were zealous and they were ready to be obedient, but you know, zeal often results in extreme behavior that often misses the mark. And I've heard people a lot of times, you know, that, that well, they'll bring that up when it comes to us falling short of the glory of God. Uh, they'll use a lot of these uh, terms to say, you know, what the Bible's shown, we all miss the mark. We all miss the mark when it comes to salvation. You know why? Because we're all sinners. We all fail. And zealous people, I said zeal is a good thing, but zeal, that trait, often causes people to just be more sinful, uh, you know, but it also makes them be, you know, more uh, extreme and doing good too sometimes. So it's all about channeling that zeal in the right direction. But often in our zeal, we miss the mark. And I do, I think these people in their zeal, I do believe they miss the mark on what they should have done and understand what they are trying to do. They are trying desperately to do all things according to the law. Now, what I titled this, this chapter is just why grace, this message is why grace is our only hope. We have people today who are doing everything they can to obey the law and trying to achieve righteousness. You've got your holiness people that are out there. I don't, I don't know, anybody familiar with like these holiness churches? Uh, there's a lot of them in the South. These people, they are, they're, they dress more old fashioned than we do. Uh, they are, they're very extreme. They're borderline Pentecostal. Some of them are full-blown Pentecostals. I don't know that they all speak in tongues. I'm sure some of them do. But these people are always trying to be super zealous. And it is, it's kind of like a contest in these churches of who's the most holy. They're always trying to outdo each other. But you know what the fact, simple fact is about these people? They still miss the mark. They still miss the mark. And whenever we are, when we go on this path to try to achieve righteousness by the works of the law, it is a frustrating thing. There is no end to problems we are going to run into because we have sinned so much. We have sinned so much that the reality is in order for us to just remove sin from our land, we just need to start putting the death penalty on just about everybody, except for maybe some of the little kids. All right, and, that, you know, and we're not going to survive if all the adults if, if all the adults die, but often, or what we see in the Bible is they are they're attempting to do these things when what they should have done, what I believe Israel should have done in this case, what they should have done in many other instances in the past, 
is they should have called on the Lord for mercy. They should have just acknowledged, hey, we've messed up and asked for forgiveness. Ask for pardon from their iniquities. And we do see them confessing their sins here. But then they're going to go and they're going to try to fix it. Let's see if we can't fix this according to the law. Listen, you can't fix sinful people with the law. You can't do it. We need grace. We need mercy. We need God to do a work in our lives. That's what they should have asked for. That's what they should have looked for. So we can, we can argue all day long about what was biblical, what's not biblical. When it comes to people's lives and when it comes to marriages and people have been divorced, you know, we can go back and forth all we want about whether the divorce was justified, whether it's okay for remarrying. We can, we can argue and fight about all this stuff and talk about how unholy these people are who get divorced, remarried, and all that, all that kind of thing. But at the end of the day, we're all missing the mark. Do you realize people get, you, you don't know why people get divorced? Because of sin in their marriage. That's why. They sin with the divorce because of sins in their marriage. If there was no sin in their marriage, they wouldn't have committed the sin of divorce because everything would have been happy and wonderful. Do we all understand that? So the reality is that, you know, we'll just zero in on one sin and put people in bondage. We'll beat them up with it. We'll make them feel terrible with those things. But at the end of the day, we'll ignore all the socially acceptable sins. And we have lots of socially acceptable sins in our world today and even in Baptist churches. But either way, those socially acceptable sins often are the things that lead to the socially unacceptable sins like divorce. So I'm just, I'm just saying all this that it's wrong when we're going around policing everybody and being overly judgmental. It's wrong when we do that. And it's also wrong when we're acting like Ruckmanites and acting like, you know, Peter Ruckman is okay getting divorced, you know, multiple times just because of the fact, look what they did in Ezra. You know, it's like we don't know. We should never go around justifying sin. Hey, it's like I don't believe we should ever justify a man slapping his wife. You know, guys shouldn't do that. But at the same time, too, you know, sometimes you can kind of understand it, you know, with some of the women that are out there, you know, and it's just it's one of those things where it's like it's amazing how we get all high and mighty about certain things. And it's like, you know, every once in a while we should just say, you know what? It stinks living in a sin-cursed world, in a sin-filled, in sin-filled flesh. And you know what? All of us should just try to do our best to be, be close to God, to walk with Him the best we can, to ask Him every day to deliver us from evil, and to be thankful every day for the grace and mercy that He shows every single one of us. And when we find ourselves in very difficult situations as a result of our sins... We should call on God for mercy in spite of the mess that we've made of everything. We shouldn't try justifying our sins. We shouldn't try going around excusing those sins, recruiting people to do the same things that we have done. But it's okay to just go to God sometimes and say, Lord, I've made a mess of things. I need your help. I need your mercy. I need your pardon. And, and you know what? People who have been divorced, they have every right to go to God and ask for mercy and grace and pardon. And you know what? If God wants to, He can bless their second marriage. He can bless their, He can bless their life and can do good in their life. He, His blood paid for their sins. And God just might do that. And God might not bless them. And that person on their second or third marriage, they might have a happier marriage than the person on their first marriage. You know, who they've never committed the sin of divorce, but they've committed a million other sins. 
that are also bad and that's contributing to the misery that's in their life. So, what, what we're seeing in this chapter is a people who are very zealously trying to obey the law instead of recognizing this law is too holy for us. We need God's mercy. And what we see here, this chapter is going to conclude with them basically getting all these divorces. But here's the thing. If we go to Nehemiah, which is, I don't know for sure, but I think roughly maybe 10 years later, maybe it might be a little longer, I can't remember for sure. But you know what? They still have the same problem. They hadn't got rid of all these things. That's one thing that everybody needs to get a hold of, that this problem that they attempted to solve here in Ezra chapter 10, that the book ends with them trying to just remove this sin from themselves as a people, they didn't get it done. We never are going to be successful in removing sin from our life without the blood of Christ, without mercy, without grace, without forgiveness, because we always still have sin and Israel continued to have sin in their lives, even though they were very zealous right here. So let's keep reading. Verse 6 um, says, Then Ezra rose up from before the house of God and went to the chamber of uh, Johanan, the son of Elisha. When he came thither, he did eat no bread nor drink water, for he mourned because of the transgression of them that had been carried away. So this is a good attitude. I mean, he's mourning. He's fasting. He is upset about this sin. I mean, this is... This is what they shoot for at camp meetings. This is what, how they want to get you feeling because of your sin at camp meetings. And it says, And they made proclamation throughout Judah and Jerusalem unto all the, unto all the children of the captivity that they should gather themselves together unto Jerusalem and that whosoever would not come within three days according to the counsel of the princes and the elders, all his substance should be forfeited and himself separated from the congregation of those that had been carried away. So Ezra is using everything in his power to get these people in condition to be able to do the things of the law because these things were very important. He's telling them, if you don't come, you're gonna, we're, we're taking everything. And so always remember this though. No matter where someone falls on their position of whether they were right or wrong in this one thing, overall Judah failed as a people and we're not ready when the Messiah came. That's something everybody needs to get a hold of. When you read Ezra and Nehemiah, this is the results of them trying to fix all their sins that got them taken into captivity. And this is them making a real effort to actually be righteous, to be worthy of doing the things of the law and the things of the temple. And let me tell you, they didn't get it done. When the Messiah came, they were not ready they were in horrible condition. Again, the, the entire Old Testament is the story of Israel's failure to keep the law. And the New Testament is the story of Jesus' success in keeping the law, which is why we connect ourselves to Jesus rather than you know, a physical nation. Because uh, he, He's the one that got it done. So, Verse 9, Then all the men of Judah and Benjamin gathered themselves together unto Jerusalem within three days. It was the ninth month, and on the twentieth day of the month, all the people that sat in the street of the house of God, trembling because of this matter and for the great rain. Now, I can't say for sure that this great rain was a result of their sin, but they thought it was. 
Because the reality is, Judah had already been punished. They had already been forgiven. They just needed to start doing right going forward. The reason they were in such... I mean, there's a lot of reasons they were in bad shape. But understand, during that time of captivity, there was no temple. The Levites weren't doing their thing. Obviously, they're not going to be in better condition as a nation after the 70 years of captivity. That's the point of God restoring them to the land. That's the point of God having them rebuild the temple, bring them back to the Levitical priesthood so they can start getting their act together. But God had already forgiven them. God has already restored them. They just need to start doing right going forward. But unfortunately, they're going back and trying to fix all those things. And that's an important thing too. You know, if you messed up in a lot of areas before you got saved, you know what? When you get saved, you should be thankful those things are under the blood. It's pointless for you to go back again and see, well, you know, I'm going to go see if I can't atone for those sins and fix all those things I did. No, be thankful that Jesus took care of those things for you and try to do the right thing going forward. That's what he wants now. Those sins are under the blood. Even if you commit some sins after you get saved, go to Christ for forgiveness and just from here on out, start doing the right thing. Stop trying to undo stuff that you can't undo. We can't undo our sins, but we can accept Christ's forgiveness and grace and mercy and move forward. And that's what Israel should have done during this time. And so verse uh, 10 says, And Ezra the priest stood up and said unto them, Ye have transgressed and have taken strange wives to increase the trespass of Israel. Now therefore, make confession unto the Lord God of your fathers and do His pleasure and separate yourselves from the people of the land and from the strange wives. Then all the congregation answered and said with a loud voice, As thou hast said, so must we do. But the people were many and it is a time of much rain uh, and we are not able to stand without. Neither is this a work of one day or two for we are many that have transgressed in this thing. So the, pro- the problem ended up being worse than they thought when they get everybody together. They're like, hey, if we're going to fix this problem and get all these divorces done, this is going to take more than a day. Because a lot of us have done this. When I was reading this, this reminded me of when I was in school. Uh, I was you know, at the Christian school at Lighthouse. I remember one day one of my friends brought a whole bunch of rubber bands to school and he started shooting them at everybody when the teacher wasn't in the room. And before you knew it, everybody started shooting rubber bands at each other. And it just kind of turned into silent chaos. We were quiet, but we're all shooting rubber bands at each other. And, and then all of a sudden, teacher came back in, and there were rubber bands all over the place. And so she got really mad, and she was just like, all right, everybody that was shooting, and she just thought it was probably you know, me and my friend, because we were typically the ones that did a lot of that stuff. She's like, everybody that was shooting rubber bands, Go to the principal's office right now. And like almost the whole school got up and went to the office. And she was just like, oh, wow, this was, uh, this was a bigger problem than I thought because ev- everybody had done it. And that's kind of what was going on here. You know, at first, I think Ezra's thinking we can deal with this in a day. But the people are like, uh, this is going to take a little while. We've all been doing this thing. And so this is not going to be an easy fix. So verse 14 says, let now our rulers of all the congregation stand and let all them which have taken strange wives in our cities come at appointed times and, and with them the elders of every city and the judges thereof until the fierce wrath of our God for this matter be turned from us. 
Only Jonathan, the son of Asahel, and Jehaziah, the son of Tikvah, were employed about this matter. And Meshulam and Shabithiah, the Levite, helped them. And the children of the captivity did so. And Ezra the priest was certain chief of the fathers after the house of their fathers. And all of them by their names were separated and sat down on the first day of the tenth month to examine the matter. And they made an end with all the men that had taken strange wives by the first day of the first month. And so, interestingly enough, it goes on to name everybody who had done this. All these people, they got their names recorded in Scripture for all eternity for, <laughs> for intermarrying. And, and it goes on, and it says, And among the sons of the priests there were found that had taken strange wives, namely of the sons of Jeshua, the son of Jozadak and his brethren, Messiah, Eliezer, and Jerob, and Gedaliah. And Joshua, he is, he's the high priest. Even, and even his sons had messed up. He was mentioned a lot early in the book of Ezra. He was one of the leaders in getting the people to rebuild the temple. He is the high priest in Israel. And even his own sons, they have committed this great sin and they have married the strange women of the land. He was not even being an example. And he's one of the good guys. That just shows how backwards they got as a people and that is something we have got to understand. When you, whenever you are reading the Old Testament, it is so important that you understand just how bad Israel got as a nation sometime to where there are certain guys in the, in the, in the Bible, you know, guys like Jephthah, that are portrayed as good guys, but yet did some pretty bad stuff. Guys like Samson. And, and, and they were. You could kind of say they were ahead of their time. You know, but, uh, but at the same time, in their time, they were so far behind that when we look back at them, we're like, how did God use these people at all? And, you know, and I think we can, you know, you can say that too, you know, with guys like historically, you know, and, and I am not, uh, I'm not, uh, trying to defend this guy's salvation or anything like that, but even guys like Martin Luther, you know, who were part of the Reformation. I mean, this guy was in the Catholic Church. The Catholic Church, you know, in the 1500s, it was very powerful. It's always been very wicked. It's always had really bad teaching. But yeah, you know, here was a guy in there that was a lot better than the Catholics during that time and actually got some things right. And so today, with all that we have and with, you know, the religious freedom we have and with the King James Bible and all the things that we have at our disposal... It's easy for us to look back at guys like Martin Luther who did have a lot of stuff wrong too and just be like, man, there's no way some of these guys could have been saved. Look how many things they had wrong. Well, we should probably be impressed with how they had certain things right considering the day and age that they were living in. So, you know, maybe, maybe they're not all as bad as we thought. You know, I hope the day comes where, you know, maybe 50 years from now where people are looking back at, you know, uh, Christianity in our day in the 20s and they're looking at all those fundamental Baptists supporting Israel and stuff like that and think, could those people have even been saved? You know, if maybe if we can keep getting the word out and keep getting truth to spread on the subject, one of these days people will be like, how did anyone believe that the Jews were God's chosen people? And, and still, how could they have still been saved? Well, you know, we get it. Okay? You know, you know we, we kind of understand it now living in this time, 
But at the, at the same time, I hope someday there's so much light in this area that, you know, people are having that debate. And we do. We have people today, you know, that are throwing everybody in hell from even 20, 30, 40 years ago because they said repent wrong one time or something. And it's like, man, you know, let's, let's back off on that. We don't need, we don't need to be that way. It's not necessary. Even guys like Joshua the high priest. And I do, I believe he was a good man overall for his time. But they were in a very dark time in their history. So you got to give them, you have to give them a little bit of credit. Now, we're not going to take the time, if you want to do this, to go and read the rest of this chapter. But the rest of the chapter is literally just names. And this is how the book of Ezra ends. And the last verse says, All these had taken strange wives, and some of them had wives by whom they had children. So the book of Ezra abruptly ends showing the mass divorces of the Levites. And it's very important that we get the big picture here and get the important lesson I believe God has for us. Because chronologically, okay, Nehemiah comes after Ezra and it is it's about 10-15 years later. So the book of, so the thing is when we get to Nehemiah, shouldn't Israel after they have been so zealous of following the law, after they've gotten rid of all the strange wives, you know, so they purified the Levites and the priesthood. Things should be a lot better, right? Right? Shouldn't we expect, you know, in Nehemiah's day, things to be a little bit better? Well, let's let's check. Okay, go to Nehemiah chapter thirteen. Nehemiah, I, I love this chapter, but this is similar to what Ezra did. I think it was last week when Ezra was like pulling out his hair and plucking hair from his beard. He was so upset with what he had seen when he saw how they had all intermarried. But let's look at Nehemiah verse 13, or chapter 13, verse 14. It says, Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and wipe not out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and the offices thereof. In those days I saw in Judah some treading wine presses on the Sabbath. Big deal. They weren't supposed to work on the Sabbath. You know what he, So this is what Nehemiah is doing. He's like, I'm telling you what I saw. This is... This is the condition of Jerusalem and bringing in sheaves and lading asses as also wine, grapes and figs and all manner of burdens, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I testified against them in that day wherein they sold victuals. There dwelt men of Tyre also therein, which brought fish and all manner of ware and sold on the Sabbath unto the children of Judah and in Jerusalem. Then I contended with the nobles of Judah and said unto them, what evil thing is this that ye do and profane the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers thus and did not our God bring all this evil upon us and upon this city? Yet ye bring more wrath upon Israel by profaning the Sabbath. And it came to pass that when the gates of Jerusalem began to be dark before the Sabbath, I commanded that the gates should be shut. And I charged them they should not be open till after the Sabbath. And that was the gates were supposed to be closed in the Sabbath because they're not supposed to be doing work. They're not supposed to be traveling around. It was a time of rest. And some of my servants said I at the gates that there should no burden be brought in on the Sabbath day. So the merchants and sellers of all kind of ware lodged without Jerusalem once or twice. So sure enough, they still came, just stand outside the gates. Like, why can't we sell our stuff? You know, this is this is this is a good selling day. You know, you're you're hurting you're hurting our business here. And he says, Then I testified against them and said to them, Why lodge ye about the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time forth, they came no more 
on the Sabbath. So he's threatening these guys. You don't come here anymore on the Sabbath. And I commanded the Levites that they should cleanse themselves and that they should keep the gates to sanctify the Sabbath day. Remember me, O my God, concerning this also, and spare me according to the greatness of thy mercy. Now watch this. In those days also saw I Jews that had married the wives of Ashdod, of Ammon, and of Moab. And their children spake half in the speech of Ashdod and could not speak in the Jews' language, but according to the language of each people. And I contended with them and cursed them and smote certain of them and plucked off their hair and made them swear by God, saying, Ye shall not give your daughters unto their sons, nor take their daughters unto your sons or for yourselves. Did not King Solomon, of Israel, king of Israel, sin by these things? Yet among many nations was there no king like him who is beloved of his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, even him did outlandish women cause to sin. So, Nehemiah was a little smarter than Ezra. Ezra ripped out his own hair. Nehemiah, when he got mad, he ripped out their hair. And I'd rather go that route, personally. And all those people then after that too started a podcast called Recovering Fundamentalists talking about the literal abuse that they got while they were in IFB. Because their preacher ripped out their hair when he got mad at them for interracial marriage. But anyway, so when they shall, so uh, shall we then hearken unto you to do all this great evil to transgress against our God in marrying strange wives. And one of the sons of Joiada, the son of Elisha, the high priest. Hey, so we're to the Levites now. All right, a son of the high priest was son-in-law to Sanballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. And Sanballat, we're going to see him in Nehemiah. He was a great opponent of the Jews and trying to stop the work that they were doing. And here you've got a priest whose son, the high priest's son, is a son-in-law to this guy. And when he sees him, he went after him. What was he going to do? I don't know. Maybe he was going to rip his hair out too. But either way, he chased him out. Nehemiah was ticked off. Remember them, O oh my God, because they have defiled the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and of the Levites. Thus cleansed I them from all strangers and appointed the words of the priest and the Levites, everyone in his business, and for the wood offering at times appointed and for the first fruits, remember me, O oh my God, for good. And basically what we are seeing in both of these books is Israel, after generations of backsliding and trying to keep the law, you know, they find, you know, we see them still failing to keep the law. After 70 years of captivity and a miraculous restoration to the land, they still fail to keep the law. They still fail to do, follow the commands of the things of the temple. And ultimately, it ends with their failure. When the Messiah came, they were not ready for Him. They killed the Messiah. And they, by mainly... and. Well, and then their biggest problem, instead of accepting the righteousness of Christ, they went about to establish their own righteousness. And look at what it says in Romans 3.19. It says, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, there shall no flesh be justified in his sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all them that believe, for there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God 
being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation through faith in His blood to declare His righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God. And so we see, again, nobody is justified in the sight of God. The way the Old Testament ends. Chronologically, the Old Testament ends in Ezra and Nehemiah with, uh, you know, when it comes to the historical books. It ends with them, because Esther was probably actually sometime before this event in Nehemiah. But chronologically, the historical books end with Israel doing a horrible job keeping the law after being restored to the land. The prophetic books end at Malachi chronologically, where Malachi is calling them out for the, their failure to follow the ceremonial practices. They're robbing God of their tithes and offerings. They're offering polluted things. They're, they're giving the, the lame instead of the first things of the flocks. They were doing everything wrong. And sadly, when the Messiah came, you had them completely not ready, completely unrighteous, filthy in their sin. And yet what did they do? They kept declaring their own righteousness and they rejected what Jesus Christ came and offered them. And interestingly enough, when I had that conversation last week with, with the Orthodox Jew, he understood that the Jews were in no condition to remain in the land. He understood that. I, it, was, it was kind of weird hearing that from him. Him acknowledge their sinfulness and their inability to stay in that holy land. I, I was interesting hearing him say that. He, but he, he recognized, and he didn't use the word, but it sounded like what he was trying to say is that you know they were told that the land would vomit out the inhabitants if they did the ways of the heathen. And that's what happened. The land literally vomited them out. They were destroyed. They were, they were removed from the land. They were spread out all over the world. They, the, in the theological world, they call it the dyspora is, is, the, is the word that they use. I think we ought to call it the vomiting is what we ought to call it. When they got ran out of the land, that was the land vomiting them out, just like God said they would if they did the things of the heathen. Israel could not stay in that land because they were too sinful. The land barfed them out. That's exactly what happened to them. And that rabbi understands that. He understands they still are in no condition to go back into that land. Sadly, though, what he does not understand is that the way to righteousness is through Jesus Christ. That's where righteousness comes from. Hey, that temple that got destroyed, stop looking there. Look outside to the east of that temple. There's a place where Jesus Christ carried a cross and where He took all of your sins and all of our sins on His body and He was crucified and He made atonement for our sins he is where we find righteousness. He is where we go to so we can be worthy. And But unfortunately, he's blind to that. He's missing that. He's looking for another Messiah to come. Another Messiah. He's waiting for an Antichrist to come. And uh, that's what that, unfortunately, that's what he's waiting for. And he needs to recognize now is the day of salvation. And he needs to believe on Christ. And it's, it's, it's sad to see him get so, so many things right, but miss the most important fact of all. And that is that righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. And you know what he needs? You know what the Jews need? Same thing we need. Grace, mercy, 
forgiveness, pardon, cleansing. It all comes from Jesus Christ. All of it comes from Jesus Christ. And so, we can't keep the law. If we could go back in time, we wouldn't do any better than Judah did at keeping the law. We couldn't do it either. And so, with that, let's pray. Dear Lord, I thank You so much for the book of Ezra and the great lessons that we can learn from it. I pray that this message would be a help. I pray you'll help us, Lord, to be thankful for Your grace and mercy and forgiveness. Help us not get lifted up with pride and act like because maybe we kept a law or two here or there uh, that we're somehow better than everybody else. But help us to just be uh, humble and just thankful for all You've done for us and help us to be merciful towards others. In Your name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.